Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come before you and primarily thank you for who you are. We thank you that we're able to gather here as a, as a body openly to, to learn, to be edified, to glorify you. Father, there are concepts and topics in this lesson which are weighty. Treating with Scripture is always a weighty task, Lord. I pray that your Spirit would be here in a palpable way, taking the, the words which, which I say and perfecting them, correcting any misspeak or, or uh, misunderstanding that I may cause to occur. Lord, I pray that you would correct it, make it, make it perfect, that you would be glorified that those who hear it will be edified, be it here or on the recording to come. We pray, Lord, that uh, it will be edifying to those here, that understanding hearts and listening ears will be present. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right. Today we're going over Doubting Castle. If you're looking at your notes, Doubting Castle is at the end because we have to get to Doubting Castle. So by way of uh, catch-up, so we're all on the same page, I have a little bit of a summary where we have journeyed, because it's been a journey so far. Christian and faithful, that should be faithful, uh, ventured into Vanity Fair. They were warned against Vanity Fair by evangelists that it was not a happy place, it was not a good place to go, yet they must go in because the Savior before them went in as well. So they go in knowing full well that this is a hostile place. They both refuse to buy into those things which are sold there, saying they'll buy only the truth, which means that they are arrested, brought before a, a uh, jury and a predisposed against them judge, and they are uh, tried for crimes against the Lord of the fair. Faithful, i got it right there, gives a masterful defense, very evocative of Stephen. <coughs> but it falls on deaf ears, even as Stephen's did, and he is condemned to death, and he is forthwith executed by scourging, buffeting, cutting or lancing, pricking or stabbing with swords, and then he is finally burned. Upon his death, there is an angelic chariot waiting to conduct his soul directly to the nearest gate to the celestial city by sound of trumpet. So, also very reminiscent of Stephen. Christian, having seen all this, is taken back to prison, but does escape. And now we go to where we are. Christian, having escaped, continues on his way with a new companion. <coughs> Hopeful. Hopeful was a member, a, 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 a resident of Vanity Fair. But he saw and heard the witness of the pilgrims, faithful and Christian. And this, by the Spirit, he did turn to the truth. So from this, right at the beginning, we can take comfort that in, in the midst of our trials, the Spirit is present. He may use our trials, all difficulties, as a witness to those around us, not just to sow seeds or water, water the crops, but possibly to bring about a harvest, to bring someone to himself. 
Hopeful also says that he is likely not going to be the last. That the, the death of faithful and the witness and testimony of Christian and faithful in Vanity Fair had far-reaching effects. Uh, it, the stone that has the, the far-reaching ripples. And uh, as if, if we look far, far into part two, that is exactly what happened. There is a church in Vanity Fair in part two when Christiana comes, forth, comes, comes through. So there's hope that because of the witness that more will come from Vanity Fair. As they continue on, they meet a man who doesn't say his name, but he says he comes from the town of Fair Speech. Now, there's a lot of uh, allegorical language in this next section. I'm going to try to go slow. If, you, if I'm going too fast, please do let me know. Do let me know. But this uh, gentleman... It says he would be glad to, have, uh, to be in their company, to go along with them, but he would also be content to be alone. And through conversation, they find that Fair Speech, from where he hails, is a very wealthy town. It is full of noble people. We also learn that this gentleman, and his name is given, though they don't know it, his name is Bayens. He himself is very wealthy. He is related to virtually all the nobility in the town of Fair Speech, he worked his way up in the true American way from waterman up to gentleman. And he is married to a lord's daughter. So the, uh, what could be called the pinnacle of worldly success. However, in conversation, they find that the pilgrims, Christian and hopeful, differ from by ends in strict religion in two ways, two very important ways. Bayans and his uh, consorts do not ever strive against the prevailing way. They are most outwardly religious when there is the most to be gained. And when there's not much to be gained, they are not outwardly religious. Here, Christian actually recognizes this gentleman by reputation. And this is something of a direct quote from the original Pilgrim's Progress, so it's a little odd in, in how we phrase it, that he, being Bayans, knows more than all the world does. And when he asks, is it not your name, Bayans? Bayans says, it is a nickname that was given to him because of his propensity or his tendency to change the favorite side. So you could call him a Fairweather fan or um, as a previous pastor of mine said he was a crawfish. He was worked his way to the prevailing way. Uh, jumping in judgment with, to whatever the, the, the present way of thinking was and gaining what he could in the process. So Bayans asks once more to join them and Christian says he is more than welcome. However, he issues a warning to him. To join them will be to strive against wind and time. Even though the wind blows hard against them, they will continue on, and they will continue on dawn to dusk to move as quickly as possible. The second thing is that Bayans would have to own his religion. He would have to be set in his religious ways, whether it be he is clothed in rags or in silk, in ease or in difficulty, in freedom or in chains. Christian having just escaped from prison with the threat of death. Bayan's box at this decides that this is, not, this is not what I want to do. So he goes on in his own way 
when it's enjoyable, when it's favorable and pleasurable. So here, two Proverbs come to mind, the first one being Proverbs twelve fifteen, which says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And then Proverbs eighteen two, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. And I condensed quite, quite uh, I summarized a lot, but in, in this chapter, Bayan's is very verbose. He has paragraphs of dialogue where Christian and Hopeful have a sentence or two. So he's, he's very uh, garrulous. He's very talkative. So Bayan's um, basically walks slowly so that they pass him by. And they do. And very soon afterwards, friends of Bayan's come to meet him on the road. He's overtaken by three friends, and in fact, they are schoolmates of his from way back when. And their names are Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All. All of them were taught the art of getting. That's what the chapter says. By Mr. Great Man, in love gain a market town in coveting. So just from all these names and places, you can sense a trend that possibly what, what Bunyan is getting at in this particular section. So through the conversation, as these three friends greet him and say, oh, who are these who are in front of us? Mayhaps we may overtake them or they could wait for us and we could talk to them. Bayan says, oh, they don't want to because they differ in religion from from me, and it would, it would not be good. So they ask, well, how do they differ? You know, how, in what do they differ, and how many are the issues? So Bayan tells them that they rush on heedless of the weather, rain, shine, sleet, snow. You could say they hold to the postman's oath. They hazard everything for God, meaning they, they have no regard for the worldly costs. They want to get to the celestial city at all costs including their lives, if it takes. They hold fast to their ideas or their opinions, regardless of others' opinions. So they have convictions. They stick to them. And they're religious even when it leads to poverty, which in Bayan's estimation is the worst of all. They don't care about money. Their friends voice their agreement that these ideas are indeed foolish, that these are not fit uh, companions, and that... We should let them go on their way, and we shall pursue our, our own way of ease and comfort and gain. So as they go along, Bayans asks a question. May not a man use outward religion to gain in the world and yet still be an honest man? Mr. Moneylove doesn't give a strict answer. At first, he poses a scenario which, for the sake of space, I'm going to summarize for you. Um, I'm happy to give you the, the full summary, if you'd like. But um, Mr. Money, Lowe's po- Money Love poses the, the, the scenario of a minister of a small situation. And I apologize if, it, if I sound like Jane Eyre or, some, or Charles Dickens. It's just the language that I had to read, so this is the notes that I took. 
But a minister has a small situation, which meaning he has a, a church position of pastor or rector or parson, which gives him a house, which he has, has a parsonage, or even a, a small lot of land that he can do as he chooses with. And he holds it for life. Well, this minister has a small one, but he wants a bigger one. So to obtain it, he decides that he has to be more studious. He has to preach more frequently and zealously. And he has to alter some of his principles to fit the prevailing opinion of his congregation. Could he not do these things to obtain a larger, richer place, bigger congregation, more prestigious allies, a larger plot of land which possibly could be leased out to gain through farming? Mr. Money Love says, absolutely, this is perfectly acceptable for the following reasons. Providence has given him this opportunity of advancing, so it must be lawful. God gives you the opportunity, well, it has to be okay. The means of getting, getting these things make him a better man and a better minister. You know, he, he's more studious. He preaches more and more zealously. Would that not make him a better man and minister? And changing his principles is great because it evidences a humility, a sweet department, and makes him a more fit minister. You know, he's, he's considerate of the opinions of his of his flock, and he doesn't want to upset them or rock the boat. In addition, pursuing a bigger and better place means he wants to advance in his call, and pursuing his call means he must, if he's doing well, have a bigger congregation. So then Mr. Moneylove gives a more direct answer to the question that there's nothing wrong with using religion to get married or gain customers or advance in the world, because religion's a virtue. It doesn't matter how you got there. It is not unlawful to gain a rich wife or get more customers, thereby gaining more money. And getting good things from good people is good. All three other men applaud this answer as wise and true. They are so happy with this scenario and their, their wisdom that they decide, well, we're going to go ask them and see if they can give us a better answer. So, they decide that Mr. Hold the World should be the one to ask because they theorize that if buy-ins ask the question, that they're going to be predisposed to give a, a, a wrong answer, not a wrong answer, a uh, contrary answer to disagree. So they ask them to basically wait up, and they get there, and they ask the question. And this is Christian's response. As it is unlawful to follow Christ for bread, it is even worse to use Christ and religion as a means of gain and pleasure. Now you may be wondering, what about where did bread come in? Excellent question. I'm glad you asked. Can I get one volunteer to read John chapter 6, verse 26? Dennis, thank you. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Thank you. So as you 
probably do remember this is very soon after the feeding of the of the five thousand. The the crowds are pursuing him, and Jesus rebukes them, saying, "You're not here for the word. You're here for bread. I filled your bellies, basically." Um, so, as it was unlawful or, or wrong for them to follow him just for the bread, it is even worse to follow Christ for a means of gain or pleasure. So Christian goes on and says, only heathens, hypocrites, devils, and wizards hold this opinion. And then he goes on to enumerate an example of each of these categories. For heathens, he references Genesis chapter 34. Hamor and Shechem decide to use circumcision as a means to gain the wealth of Jacob. Jacob and his family are, are, are right outside the city, and they decide, partly because um, their sister has been violated, that he wants to marry her. And why not use this small thing of circumcision to gain their wealth? I mean, is he not wealthy? Will we not intermarry with them and gain their wealth and, and, uh, and themselves? But circumcision was a holy thing instituted by God for the covenant. Hypocrites, as you may have deduced, the Pharisees, they loved to pray long and loud, but inwardly, they wanted to gain widows' homes. That's Luke chapter 20, verses 46 and 47. Devils, Judas Iscariot, he loved money and was cast away, not purely for the love of money, but it is said that he was a very greedy man. And then wizards. This one threw me for a bit of a loop until I read on. Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 wanted to buy the ability to give the Holy Spirit for money. He was soundly rebuked as you would buy the Spirit with money. So to sum it basically up, a man that would take up religion for gain, would discard it for the same reason as Bayan's just said he did all the time. Well, these men could not answer this, uh, this wise biblical response, and so they did nothing. They just said, well, fine. We're just going to uh, let you stride on and forget about it. This, too, is evocative of Proverbs 26, 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own way, or his own eyes. It doesn't specify whether it's in their hearing or not, but Christian does ask two questions, and Hopeful did hear them, and it is important for us to hear them as well. If these men cannot stand before the sentence of men, what will they do with the sentence of God? And if they are mute when dealt with by vessels of clay, what will they do when they be rebuked by the flames of a devouring fire? Pilgrims continue on over a plain called Ease, that being very narrow, is soon leads them to a hill that's called Lucre, in which is a silver mine. And there's a man calling them to come dig in it, and his name is Demas. Hopeful is actually tempted to go into the mine. And, uh, and at least see it. It's very famous. 
But Christian, because it is famous, having heard of the place and the dangers thereof, they refuse. And he challenges Demas with the danger. Are there not many who go in and never come out? Demas says, oh, that's not at all true, but his, his face betrays that the lie. The, the, the chapter says he blushes. So as they, as they continue on, Hopeful predicts that Bayans and his friends will likely turn aside because their principles being gain would lead them to do so. As they go on, Demas calls after them. But Christian quotes Paul and rebukes him. That rebuke being in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas calls after them once again and says, I too am a pilgrim. I will come with you if you will just wait for me. Christian proclaims him to be son of Judas and grandson of Gehazi. Gehazi being the servant of Elisha. I believe that's right. Elisha, who after curing Naaman, Elisha dismisses him, says, I don't want your, your gold, your money. I don't want a reward. But Gehazi goes after him and gets the reward instead. And he then is given the leprosy that Naaman was cured of. True to the prediction, Bayans and the company draw near and are snared by the mine, and none ever leave it. Some are killed when they go to look at it, and the ground gives way. Some go in and never come out. So just, just as they pass this hill, there's a strange monument. It's a pillar of salt in the shape of a woman, which they have no idea what that meant, but I'm sure we all do. There's a sign above it, which Hopeful cannot read because he is not educated, but Christian is, so he reads it with some difficulty. It says, remember Lot's wife. Christian observes that had they stayed to the mine, they too would be a spectacle for travelers. A, uh, a byword. Hopeful realizes that this is true, and he becomes extremely downcast and marvels that he too was not turned to a pillar of salt. Because she only looked back. She never actually turned back, but he actually had the desire, the temptation to go in. They agreed that this pillar of salt being a gracious warning is to be heeded and is a reason to be thankful to the Lord for his many mercies. Hopeful also asks the question, how can Demas and these men do what they do in full sight of this monument, this pillar? And after some discussion, they, they decide that likely their hearts are so hardened by sin that nothing, save the Spirit, can bring it to where they actually see the warning for what it is. Going on, they encounter a stream of good water, which is called a spring of life, with good fruit trees beside it, so they rest and eat of its fruit. And then they continue on the next day following the, the, the path as it goes right by the stream. It's a very pleasant path. And then the path diverges and becomes rocky and difficult. That's not very fun. So they look across a fence, which is also nearby, and there's a soft meadow, easy, easy to get to. Christian suggests that they climb the fence and go along in the meadow, alongside the fence, as the path seems to go in the same way, and it'll be easier, they'll go faster. 
Hopeful's not so sure. He's hesitant, but he does eventually yield to Christian's advice. So they climb the fence, and then they go on, and they see a man up ahead. They call to him, and he says, oh, I'm going to the celestial city. This path goes there that way. And so they take that as, a, as an encouragement, and then they keep going. This man, whose name is Vain Confidence, as darkness falls, Vain Confidence ahead of him, he falls into a pit, and they hear the sound of his fall and his groanings at the bottom. And he dies. Because it is now almost full dark, they hear him fall and they're very frightened. And then it begins to storm. And not just a light Texas storm, this sounded more like a typhoon. The, the, way, that, the way that they're on actually becomes so flooded that they're afraid they're going to be swept away. So flash flood comes to mind. Christian sees the error of his ways because now they can't get back over the fence. And here does a very interesting thing. He repents to hopeful for misleading. Hopeful has the, the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. If someone will also volunteer to look that up. Please. Hopeful forgives him. And they try to retrace their steps. 432. 432, please. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderly hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Thank you, Edgar. So forgiveness is not always easy. We had a, a fairly long discussion during one of our, our men's meetings about <coughs> forgiveness and what it means. In biblical counseling training, there are, there are four things that you are committing to when you tell someone, I forgive you. You are committing that you will never bring it up again. You will not hold it in remembrance against them. It's not in your journal. It's ready to be brought up at the next argument. You will not talk to others about this offense. fourth one I usually forget because it's closely allied with the other two. Um, oh, you will not continue to cogitate on it. You will not think about it over and over and over and over again. It is out of mind as much as you can. It is not necessarily forgetting, but it is a forgetting for punitive purposes. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's not. But that is what we are saying when we forgive. And that is what hopeful is meaning right here. He is graciously, by effect, saying to Christian, yes, you led me into danger. We may now die because I listened to you. But I forgive you. I'm not going to remember this against you. I'm not going to keep hating you because of it. Even if we die, it is what it is. I did follow you. I didn't think it was a great idea, but you're older. So I listened to you, but it's okay. Let us now proceed. That is an excellent example to remember. So as they try to retrace their steps, they are nearly swept away by the rain, and they find a small shelter, so they hide away in it. 
and they hide, and they, they actually fall asleep. Well, the next morning, a giant finds them. His name is Despair. And he lifts them up and takes them. I'm running, running behind. He takes them to his castle for trespassing. They trespassed over his land, and they're in his shelter without permission, so he takes them to the castle dungeon and leaves them there for four days without food, water, or light. Well, the food, yeah, I get pretty hungry, but, okay, four days isn't awful. Without water, that's pretty grievous, and without light, from some of the uh, accounts that I've, I've read, without light for several days, you don't do so well. And throughout this all, Christian is in double the anguish because it is his counsel that brought him to brought them to this point. Even though he is forgiven, has he yet forgiven himself? Now, over several days, despair keeps talking to his wife each night. Her name is Diffidence. And if possible, she is probably the worst of the two. Who tells him to beat them? So he does so to such a degree that they can't even turn over. So they're unconscious or nearly so. The next night, diffidence gives despair some advice, which raises a very difficult question. Diffidence tells despair, tell them to kill themselves, because it is better for that to happen. So he does exactly that the next morning, which poses a question to these two pilgrims. Do they take the advice, or do they keep going knowing that further harm is likely to come to them? Christian actually says, I'd rather die than stay here. Christian is despairing. Hopeful, however, is not. He says, though our current situation is awful, it is not hopeless. The scriptures say, God, God gives the commandment, do not murder And if we ought not to kill an, another person, an image bearer of God, how much more should we not kill ourselves? Also, he says, some have escaped from despair, and we may yet do the same. Christians comforted and they agree, okay, we're going to keep persevering, we're going to keep on going. So that next evening, despair comes down, and it's a surprise they didn't take his advice. So he threatens them with even worse torture, and the pilgrims have a similar conversation once more. A similar result comes, comes, to end, comes at the end because Faithful tells Christian how he fought Apollyon and won by the Spirit. He braved the valley of the shadow of death alone. Christian is not alone here, even as he wasn't alone really there. He might have been physically alone, but he wasn't uh, spiritually alone. He also says, remember Vanity Fair. You were under the threat of death then. You watched what happened to Faithful. Be patient still. He who brought you out of those can bring you out of here. And hopefully he brings me too. Despair and diffidence plan to take the bones to the boneyard in the uh, courtyard to persuade them to die. Despair does show them and then beats them all the way back down to the dungeon. But then, interestingly, they, they worry that they have uh, pick locks, or what I would call lock picks, or keys, and they can escape. More than four days afterward, they're now worried about escaping. 
which that night, Christian remembers he has a key called promise. They use it on the doors and it unlocks every door. And they use it to leave the castle. The last get the gate creaks, waking despair. But as they, he hits the sunlight, he comes into a fit, falls over, and they run out and escape. So they make their way back to the road. In the light, they can see where they climbed over. And they make a sign saying, this is Bypath Meadow. Do not go here. Giant despair prowls. And here, as I'm likely running long, we come to the, the summation, the lessons that we can learn from this chapter. God can use even our suffering as a witness to others. We should be wary of seeking anything by means of religion other than Christ. If we are seeking a thing of this world by means of religion, then what is your religion? Gain? Greed? We must hold fast in all conditions. Easy, hard, Freedom, prison. Poverty, riches. If we believe a thing, a theological thing is false, we cannot keep silent. Because good theology is essential, and bad theology can kill. We also learned that despair is a very real thing. It can affect even even those who have been previously strong. So there's not something to be discounted. And if we know a person who is in the dungeon of despair, this gives us several things that we can do to help them biblically. Remind them that they are not alone. This is both physically. We as the church body can rally around a person who is feeling alone. But also spiritually. Christ is there. All these assume that they are indeed a Christian. If they are not a Christian, then they have no hope. So we should bring them hope in the gospel. Remind them of what God has done in the past for them. It is likely a very long, long list. And even if they are not yet a believer, Christ may have died for them. So God still did something for them in the past. Remind them that there is always hope with God on their side. If God is for us, who can be against us? And to remind them of the promises that are theirs in Christ. I will either leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. There's also a very weighty question which this brought into our heads and I will try to cover it briefly but uh, succinctly. I'm happy to answer more questions and share resources that I have. The question being, can a true Christian commit suicide? Easy answer. Is it possible? Yes. However, please hear this. Suicide is not the way out. It is a rejection of Christ's headship. You are taking your life which was bought with a price in your hands, out of God's. You are declaring to God, you can't help me anymore, so I'm going to help myself, which it's not help. So is it possible? Yes. Can it be covered by the blood? Absolutely. Paul is extremely clear. 
extremely clear that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ once we are in him. And I will read from that just to make sure it is extremely clear. Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else that is in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing else in all creation. Can you name or think of one thing that was not created by God? Just one. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a marvel it is that you are our Father. We are adopted. We are heirs in Christ. Father, I pray that this teaching was edifying, that it glorified you, that it would continue to edify and glorify you. Father, I pray that if there are any in this room or hear this recording that are despairing, that they would go to someone in this room or someone else who can't help them who can remind them of the promises that you have given us. Remind them that you are never, you will never leave us. Father, we pray that you would equip us by the Spirit for those things which are to come, be it trials and tribulation, be it ease for a time, that we would give an answer as Christian give an answer. We pray that you would speed us on to corporate worship, that we would continue to give you glory and honor and praise and worship. And we pray it all in the name of Christ.